Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, domestic abuse, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 21-year-old Linda Aguilar shuffled along a secluded Oregon road as the afternoon sun beamed overhead. She rested one arm on her pregnant belly and craned her neck to look behind her. The street was empty. Hitchhiking was usually the fastest way across town, but today just wasn't her day. Just as she was about to give up, she spotted a van in the distance. She held her thumb high and waved. The vehicle continued along down the road for about a quarter mile, then made a slow U-turn. Linda breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe she'd catch a break after all. She waved at the van once more, and to her delight, it pulled to a stop next to her. The handsome driver introduced himself as Gerald, while his wife glared at Linda from the passenger seat. She was a little off-putting, but Linda's feet were aching too much for her to care. All she wanted to do was get home and rest. She gave her best friendly smile and climbed into the back seat. Gerald Gallego's mouth watered as he locked the door behind her. Linda had just wandered into her grave. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we talked about serial killers Gerald and Charlene Gallego. A lifelong predator, Gerald abused his wife Charlene in a relentless pursuit of sexual dominance. In the fall of 1978, the couple started to kidnap, rape, and murder young girls in the Sacramento area to fulfill his sadistic fantasies. This week, we'll chronicle the second half of the couple's rampage and the FBI manhunt that brought their reign of terror to an end. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In May 1980, just a few weeks after abducting and murdering their fifth and sixth teenage victims, Gerald and Charlene Gallego were in a slump. They were normally elated after a successful kill, but their most recent hunt had not gone as hoped. Due to a misunderstanding, their victims hadn't really believed they were in danger until the very end. The genuine fear and power the Gallegos craved had vanished, and the sex was too consensual for the couple to enjoy. Even after he bludgeoned the two girls to death, Gerald felt unsatisfied. To make matters worse, Charlene was newly pregnant, and her relentless morning sickness grated on his nerves. Unwilling to help his wife in any meaningful way, he spent most of his days wallowing in self-pity. Meanwhile, Charlene split her time between endless household chores and kneeling over the toilet. While she was left to take care of herself, Gerald tried to remember the euphoria of their very first murders. He ached to hear the horrified screams of his victims again, to feel the rush of absolute power. Before I continue with Gerald's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 2018, experimental psychologist Dr. David Chester conducted a study examining individuals with sadistic tendencies. His research found that people who enjoy inflicting pain on others often experience an emotional crash once their victim is no longer suffering. The pleasure of causing pain quickly shifts to sadness when their target is effectively out of harm's way. Gerald now realized just how much he needed to incite genuine terror from his victims. He promised himself he wouldn't make the same mistake again. However, his mood continued to plummet over the next couple of weeks, worsening the atmosphere of bitterness and animosity in the house. Years of manipulation and abuse left Charlene subservient, but even her patience had its limits. Gerald's laziness, on the other hand, knew no bounds. As she suffered to carry his child, Charlene couldn't help but feel a kernel of resentment. Then, all of a sudden, everything changed. Gerald disappeared for two days and returned with a smile on his face. He'd clearly done something to raise his spirits in that 48 hours, but whatever it was remains a mystery to this day. The next morning, Gerald told her he had a revelation. He claimed they were both in an emotional funk because they'd become disconnected as a couple. In order to rebound, they needed to get remarried. Charlene had no idea what he was talking about, 
but the prospect of an impromptu wedding seemed incredibly romantic. If it made Gerald happy, that was all that mattered to her. On June 1st, 1980, the couple drove to Reno, Nevada to renew their vows. With their love rekindled, Gerald suggested they go on a honeymoon. They'd spent the better part of the last two years abducting young girls and laying low from the police. Gerald needed a break. When the two of them got back from Reno, he ordered Charlene to load up their van with camping gear. They would leave for Oregon in the morning. Gerald's idea of a vacation didn't involve much togetherness. He spent hours fishing by himself while Charlene was buckled over with morning sickness. For three days, he dragged her up and down the Oregon coast as he pleased. The fresh air did wonders for his mental state, while Charlene spent the entire time trying not to vomit in the van. By the third afternoon, Gerald's depression had completely worn off. He finally felt like his old self again, confident, powerful. As they approached a female hitchhiker along a lonely stretch of road, a familiar sensation overwhelmed him. Gerald spotted Linda Aguilar from half a mile away. She was small like Charlene, but with long, dark hair. Even from that distance, he could tell she was only a month or two away from giving birth. She wasn't his usual type, but Gerald imagined he could easily terrify and overpower a pregnant woman. The sun glistened on her skin, calling out to him. She was all alone. His lips curled into a twisted smile. It was neither the time nor the place for a kidnapping, but he didn't care. His eyes turned cold. He needed her now. He slammed on the brakes and turned the van around. Charlene saw the bloodthirsty look in his eye and asked what he was doing. She already knew the answer. With a low growl, Gerald told her they were going back for the woman. Charlene frowned. She wasn't one to question Gerald's authority, but this time she couldn't hide her apprehension. This wasn't like abducting runaways from a crowded mall. This felt far too spontaneous, but she had no choice except to get on board. With the look Gerald had in his eye, she knew it wasn't up for discussion. When they pulled the van alongside 21-year-old Linda, she eagerly climbed inside. Gerald made easy small talk with his prey as he looked for a secluded area to strike. As he rounded a bend, he spotted a lonely field tucked away in the woods. Perfect. With effortless charm, he told Linda they needed to make a quick detour to retrieve some forgotten camping gear. She didn't suspect a thing as the van lurched to a halt in the clearing. Gerald grabbed his gun and stepped out into the warm sunshine. It couldn't have been a nicer day, and as he rounded the back of the van, he felt like the universe was shining down its blessing. Fueled by ravenous lust, Gerald threw the doors open and shoved his gun in Linda's face. She screamed so loud that he could barely hear himself shout commands. As he grabbed her, Linda stumbled forward and fainted from pure terror. 
She collapsed headfirst into Gerald with such force that he fell backwards out of the van. He let out a dramatic howl as Charlene tried to process what had happened. From her point of view, it looked like Linda had lunged at her husband. She leapt into the back seat to defend him. With unbounded fury, she grabbed both sides of Linda's head and slammed it into the floor of the vehicle again and again. For just a moment, Gerald was genuinely scared of her raw anger. When Linda finally regained consciousness, her hands and feet had been tied. She pleaded for her life while the Gallegos feasted on her fear. It was exactly what they wanted. With the thrill of the hunt coursing through their veins, they pounced on their prize. An hour later, the Gallegos tied Linda up once again and slithered to the front of the van. Gerald drove slowly through the Oregon countryside, eventually arriving at a desolate stretch of beach around 6 p.m. Linda hadn't given up hope that she could make it out alive and once again begged for mercy. She had a family waiting for her and promised not to say a word about what had happened if they let her go. To her surprise, Gerald agreed. An eerily friendly smile flashed across his face and he promised to release her safely down by the shore. He guided Linda along the sand until they were completely hidden from the street. After a quick glance to ensure they were alone, he made his move. Unlike his previous murders, Linda's was not quick. Instead of using a gun or a blunt instrument, Gerald strangled her with his own hands. It was messy and time-consuming. For whatever twisted reason, he took his time with Linda Aguilar, reveling in a whole new type of suffering. When it was done, Gerald left his victim in a shallow grave along the shifting beach. When her body was eventually found, an autopsy discovered sand in her nose, mouth, and throat, a sign that she was still breathing when he walked away. Linda Aguilar was buried alive. When we return, Gerald and Charlene kill closer to home. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? 
Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On June 6, 1980, 33-year-old Gerald Gallego and his wife, 23-year-old Charlene, raped and murdered Linda Aguilar. She was their seventh victim in under two years and by far their most reckless kill. As they drove home, Charlene worried someone had seen them dump the body. She couldn't deny the danger was exciting, but the growing risk made her nervous. Gerald placed a reassuring hand on her leg and told her they would be fine. Charlene knew better than to push him on an issue he didn't want to talk about. The couple rode the high of their latest kill for the next few weeks. Charlene's morning sickness subsided, and for a short time, they actually got along. But the thrill didn't last forever. By July, they had crashed back down to earth. Gerald still expected Charlene to maintain their house throughout her pregnancy. As far as he was concerned, baby issues were not his problem. The tension led to daily screaming matches, none of which ended in Charlene's favor. After a particularly bad fight on July 10th, Gerald hit his wife so hard that she collapsed to the ground. As she wept on the floor, Gerald fell to his knees, tears rolling down his face, he confessed to being a terrible husband. It's hard to believe this rare moment of tenderness was genuine. In a 2014 article on abusive relationships, psychologist Dr. Zlatka Rakovitz-Felzer explained how apologetic behavior is a typical and usually short-lived stage in the cycle of abuse. Often after explosions of violence, Abusers show remorse to get back into their victim's good graces. The feelings are usually temporary, however, used only as a tool to prevent their partner from leaving. Nevertheless, Charlene was moved. She had never seen Gerald so apologetic. She begged him not to be too hard on himself and assured him of her love. For the first time in a long time, the couple had a sincere emotional connection. They didn't want to waste the chance to reignite their romance. It had only been a month since their last murder, but as they stared into each other's eyes, both knew it was time for another. They freshened up, hopped into the van, and started to hunt. The couple spent the night stalking the streets of Sacramento, but came up with nothing. Frustrated, they continued the following night, and the night after that. For an entire week, they prowled the city, returning home each morning with their tails between their legs. Gerald's birthday was only a few days away, and Charlene felt especially bad that they hadn't found another victim. She refused to let the day come and go without a suitable offering and set out to find one on her own. 
once again, she failed. It had never been difficult to lure in a captive before, but for whatever reason, no one fell for her traps. On the night before Gerald's celebration, after several hours of unsuccessful sex, the couple felt defeated. Charlene promised her husband they would find someone the next day. With a hand on her cold heart, she vowed to comb the entire city for prey until they bag their next kill. On July 17th, Charlene and Gerald spent his 34th birthday cooped up in their van. After wasting the entire evening searching, Gerald finally had enough. He was demoralized, and for the first time in his life, wanted a distraction from sex and death. In dire need of a drink, the couple drove to a nearby pool hall where he got to work drowning his sorrows in alcohol. As her husband challenged a stranger to a game of pool, Charlene waited by the bar. She passed the time by watching the cute blonde bartender pour drinks. She soon learned the woman's name was Virginia Mokul. She looked to be in her early 30s, with blue eyes and self-confidence that probably came from years of dealing with sullen customers. Charlene spoke to her for a few minutes, and her attraction was instant. She'd finally found a suitable target. Even though Gerald had ended their hunt, Charlene didn't give up so easily. She glided over to the pool table and directed her husband's attention to Virginia. When he gave her an icy smile, she knew she'd found the perfect birthday gift. The Gallegos slipped out of the bar 15 minutes before close. They patiently waited in their van, eyes glued to the back entrance of the bar, until the last patron stumbled out into the night. It was time to make their move. Charlene crossed the parking lot and knocked on the door until Virginia cracked it open. Charlene introduced herself and asked Virginia to retrieve a jacket she'd intentionally left inside. As Virginia went to fetch it, Charlene signaled Gerald to get into position. A few minutes later, when Virginia went out to her car, Gerald pounced on her from the shadows. He grabbed her by the hair and yanked her inside the van. After a week of failed abductions, the Gallegos were bursting with anticipation. They were too impatient to find a secluded area outside of the city as they normally did, so they smuggled Virginia back into their own home. For the next three hours, they turned it into a nightmarish dungeon. By 5 a.m., the couple had tortured Virginia to the brink of death. Only then did Gerald strangle her with nylon fishing line. He and Charlene dumped the body in the nearby river and returned home. As they drifted off to sleep, they snuggled close. Gerald couldn't have asked for a better birthday. Virginia's murder was the most thrilling the Gallegos had felt since their first. Unfortunately they didn't have long to enjoy it. Just a few days later, Gerald learned that the bodies of Stacy Ann Redican and Karen Chipman Twiggs, their fifth and sixth victims, had been found in the wilderness. The discovery made the Gallegos nervous. Though the police hadn't yet found any evidence linking them to the crime, 
Gerald thought it would be best to skip town for a little while. For the next month, as Charlene entered her second trimester, the couple traveled through Oregon, Washington, and Montana. Fortunately for the two of them, the police came up empty, but the Galegos knew they needed to cover their tracks better. When they returned to California, the couple scrubbed their house clean. They sold their van soon after. With the evidence destroyed, the Galegos slowly regained enough confidence to resume their rampage. Their baby was due in just a few months, and Charlene knew they might not have any more chances before he arrived. In a few weeks, she'd be too occupied to be an effective accomplice. They needed someone, now. On the night of November 1st, after stalking the streets for hours in a silver Oldsmobile borrowed from Charlene's parents, the Gallegos had gotten nowhere. Just before they called it quits, Gerald rode up to a noisy restaurant. It was nearly 1 a.m., but the place was still bustling with activity. They surveilled the patrons inside for a few moments before Gerald noticed a large banner above the entranceway. They stumbled upon a college fraternity celebration filled with attractive young girls. Gerald peered into the building like a fox sizing up a hen house. He gripped the steering wheel and shifted anxiously in his seat. There were more potential victims than he could count. The possibilities were endless. Unfortunately, the place was also crawling with witnesses. His instincts told him it was too risky, but Gerald cast them aside. He didn't care about playing it safe anymore. The police were clearly incompetent. He was too smart for them. His breath quickened as a striking blonde in a long blue dress caught his eye. Her arm was securely wrapped around her dates, but Gerald paid him no mind. It was time to strike. 21-year-old Mary Elizabeth Sowers and 22-year-old Craig Miller had just made it to their car when they were blinded by headlights. A mysterious vehicle screeched to a halt inches from their feet. Craig started to protest as Charlene leapt out of the passenger seat in a frenzy. But before he could say more than a word or two, she drew her gun. Charlene waved her pistol at the frightened couple and ordered them into the car. Craig offered himself in exchange for Mary's freedom, but Charlene just laughed. She shoved them inside, frantic to escape before someone saw. Just then, a voice called out from over her shoulder. Andy Beal, a fraternity brother and friend of Craig and Mary's, happened to be leaving the restaurant at the very moment the Gallegos made their move. Andy had been drinking and watched the commotion from afar, not comprehending the gravity of what he was seeing. As the voices escalated, curiosity got the better of him. He wandered over to the car to check on his friends, completely unaware he was interrupting a kidnapping. When Craig saw Andy approach, he shouted for his friend to walk away. He refused to let another person he cared about get in harm's way. But Andy wasn't going to abandon his friends so easily and demanded to know what was going on. Caught off guard, Charlene spun around to face the massive fraternity brother. Without thinking, 
she hurled her entire weight into a single punch, aimed straight for his nose. The blow was hard enough to knock Andy backwards and gave Charlene the brief moment she needed to jump in the car. The tires screeched to life, and the Gallegos, along with their ninth and 10th captives, took off. Disoriented and sore, Andy managed to catch a glimpse of the silver car as it sped into the night. It was just long enough for him to memorize the license plate. When we return, Gerald and Charlene's rampage finally comes to an end. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of November 2nd, 1980, Gerald and Charlene Gallego kidnapped Mary Elizabeth Sowers and Craig Miller. But for the first time in two years, they left a witness alive. The couple barreled down the highway in a panic. They'd pushed their luck too far. Someone had seen their faces. Charlene screamed into the air, furious that she hadn't put a bullet between Andy Beale's eyes. Gerald was equally worried, but refused to let his emotions get the better of him. He had to think. His eyes darted to the rearview mirror, soaking in the fear of his captives. The girl was theirs. Before they could have any fun, they needed to ditch her date. He raced for the secluded foothills outside of the city, pulled into a small recreational area off the highway, and ordered 22-year-old Craig outside. The young man put on a brave face. He promised his girlfriend that everything would be okay, doing his best to hide the tremble in his voice. Mary was too shaken to speak and watched in silence as he walked around the front of the car. Gerald leaned out of the door, raised his gun, and fired three shots into Craig's heart. Paralyzed with fear, Mary could barely muster a noise as her boyfriend slumped to the cold ground. Making no effort to hide the body, Gerald whipped the car back to the highway and raced home. It was half past 2 a.m. when the Gallegos pulled into their driveway. They dragged Mary inside at gunpoint and assaulted her for the next two hours. When they finished, they threw her back in the car and drove to another remote location northeast of the city. At this point, Mary was barely clinging to consciousness. Gerald tossed her in a nearby ditch, shot her in the head, and left her for dead. As soon as the adrenaline wore off, the Gallegos realized they'd slipped up. Nearly everything had gone wrong. Neither body had been buried, and their witness was probably talking to the police at that moment. Without a moment to lose, the couple destroyed every shred of evidence connecting them to Craig and Mary they could find. Charlene got to work cleaning the house while Gerald tossed his gun into the Sacramento River. They collected the soiled clothing they'd worn during the murder and tossed it in the car. Too nervous to be seen in a public laundromat, they drove to Charlene's parents' house to wash the blood out of their clothes. By the time they arrived, the police were already there. The Gallegos walked up the driveway with their heads buried in clothes, too distracted to notice the unmarked squad car parked out front. 
Just before they stepped to the door, it opened with a jolt. Charlene's mother, Mercedes Williams, stood before them with her eyes wide. Inside the house, the authorities had just finished explaining to Mercedes and Charles Williams that a silver Oldsmobile registered in their name had been used in a suspected kidnapping. Mercedes told the officers that the car belonged to their daughter and her husband. She claimed she didn't know their current whereabouts. As if fate itself wanted the Gallegos to get caught, they appeared in the driveway just a few minutes later. Unfortunately for the police, Mercedes wouldn't allow her daughter to be arrested. She warned Charlene and Gerald to leave just in time. The killers sped away, but realized they needed supplies before skipping town. They couldn't risk exposing themselves in public, so once the coast was clear, they returned to Charlene's parents' house and asked for money. Charlene insisted their trouble was a big misunderstanding, claiming that Gerald had an outstanding warrant upstate that was completely unrelated to any kidnapping. Unwilling to see their only daughter behind bars, her parents gave them a few hundred dollars and some clean clothes. As Gerald and Charlene prepared to flee, Craig Miller's fraternity brother, Andy Beal, was helping the police identify them. When investigators showed him Gerald's driver's license, Andy recognized the photo right away. Officers raced to the Gallegos' home to apprehend the couple, but they were too late. Gerald and Charlene were gone. Authorities searched the house anyway and found several guns. Suspected armed and dangerous, police issued a statewide alert to enforcement agencies. Yet again, they were too late. By the time the order went out, the couple was already halfway to Nebraska. The next morning, Charlene's mother, Mercedes Williams, called the police to tell them that her daughter and son-in-law had disappeared. She insisted that neither of them knew anything about Craig and Mary's kidnappings and that it was all a misunderstanding. Investigators were unconvinced. They probed further and Mercedes let it slip that the couple had escaped California. Now that the Gallegos had crossed state lines, Sacramento police contacted the FBI. In a matter of hours, a full-blown manhunt was underway. Already suspicious of Mercedes, the FBI started monitoring her phone in hopes that Charlene would eventually call home. It didn't take long for their hunch to bear fruit. Over the next two weeks, law enforcement intercepted several conversations between Charlene and her parents. The talks were short and mostly unhelpful, however, as Charlene was smart enough not to mention their location. Finally, on November 16th, the FBI caught a break. That morning, Charlene's parents woke up early and went for a drive. Investigators sent two squad cars to tail them. It was a long shot, but they hoped the worried parents would lead them straight to the kidnappers. Charlene's parents headed east along the interstate toward Nevada. They finally came to a stop at a small Western credit union outside of Reno. Then, they headed back to Sacramento, unaware the FBI was following their every move. The agents quickly discovered 
that the Williams had wired $500 to another credit union in Omaha, Nebraska. After two weeks of relentless surveillance, the FBI closed in on Gerald and Charlene Gallego. On the morning of November 17th, Gerald and Charlene approached the credit union near their motel, blissfully unaware that authorities had already surrounded the building. Charlene skipped her way inside as Gerald slunk into the adjacent alley, out of sight. Charlene introduced herself to the clerk with a warm smile. As she waited for the money, an undercover FBI agent slipped into the building unnoticed. Not wanting to hurt her baby, he calmly approached Charlene and told her not to make any sudden moves. Gerald didn't get the same consideration. Once the agent confirmed Charlene's capture, the rest of his unit swarmed Gerald with full force. Surrounded with shotguns, the officers hurled him to the ground and slapped his wrist in cold steel. Gerald and Charlene's sadistic killing spree was over. But while the police were happy to apprehend two suspected kidnappers, they had no idea how evil the Gallegos truly were. As far as they knew, Gerald and Charlene had only abducted Mary Sowers and Craig Miller. It would take over a year for the full extent of their crimes to come to light. After their arrest, the Gallegos were taken to separate jail cells to await trial. Gerald was unshaken, He'd been talking his way out of trouble since he was a kid. The evidence against them was paper thin, and without any hard proof, there was no way they would be convicted. Charlene, on the other hand, was petrified. She had never been arrested, paranoid that it was only a matter of time before the police discovered their many victims. Charlene started to crumble. She sat alone in her cell, weeping into the rough pillow. She couldn't remember the last time she saw Gerald. If only he were here now. He was better suited for this than she was. She could feel the walls closing in around her with each passing day. At night, she could hear the ghosts of her victims taunting her through the concrete. Maybe she deserved it. They were guilty after all. She was certain a jury would agree. Still, Charlene didn't want to die. She didn't know a lot about the legal system, but was fully aware she faced possible execution. As her tears ran dry, Charlene drifted into a restless sleep, tormented by nightmares. In March of 1982, Charlene hit her breaking point. Terrified of being sentenced to death, she organized a meeting with the prosecution and offered a confession. In exchange for a lighter sentence, Charlene told them she was willing to provide details on not only Craig and Mary's murders, but eight others as well. In stunned silence, the authorities listened to Charlene recount the killings with exceptional clarity. Gifted with an outstanding memory, she gave the names, dates, and times of each of the murders. Her testimony left the investigators torn. They assumed the Gallegos were equally guilty, 
and couldn't be sure whether Charlene was skewing the story to make herself seem less responsible. Regardless, their evidence against the two was weak and her confession was too valuable to ignore. If Gerald really was the mastermind, then they needed to put him away for good and Charlene was willing to help. To seal the deal, the prosecution told Charlene she would have to testify. Not only that, but since Gerald elected to be his own attorney, he would be the one cross-examining her. Charlene shuddered at the idea of facing her husband again, but it was a price she was willing to pay. By the time the trial began in November 1982, the couple hadn't seen each other in almost two years. When Charlene finally took the stand, Gerald spent hours trying to discredit her confession. Though he did his best to intimidate her, Charlene refused to submit. His power over her was gone. On June 22, 1983, Gerald Gallego was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. He would eventually receive a second sentence in Nevada for the murders of Stacey Ann Redican and Karen Chipman Twiggs. He remained on death row for nearly two decades until he died from cancer in 2002. In exchange for her confession, Charlene received a reduced sentence of 16 years. Her baby, Gerald Jr., was born while she awaited trial and taken to be raised by her mother. As of 2013, she was living under a new identity in a quiet suburb of Sacramento. Though Charlene was fully complicit in the deaths of those 10 people, she too was a victim of Gerald's abuse. He controlled her every move, and if she hadn't cooperated, there's no telling what he would have done to her. In the end, Charlene chose her own life over his. Perhaps their time apart gave her a chance to realize how abusive and manipulative he was. Or maybe she just preferred to throw him under the bus to avoid her own death. Whatever the reason, her confession put them both behind bars, potentially saving the lives of many others. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Gerald and Charlene Gallego, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Venom in the Blood by Eric Van Hoffman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.